Welcome back, Hemming Faces, to the Hemming Brainiac podcast, talking about War and Peace, book one, chapter 23. Lisa, the little princess, and Maya both seem very lovely, but they have very different temperaments. How do you predict they will get along during Lisa's stay at the Bolkonsky house? And what are your thoughts about Nikolai Bolkonsky's relationship with his children, Andre and Maya? What does this interaction with each of them reveal about his character? Andre is um, Andrew, and Maya is Mary. The translations just sort of mix them up. And Lisa and Lisa. So if your translation is mixing up between Andre and Andrew and Maya and Mary and Lisa and Lisa, don't be too confused. They're all the same people. Um, Speaking of different translations, before we get into today's chit-chat... I wanted to tell you about something that happened today in my translating efforts. I thought this was kind of cool, so I wonder if you guys will like this. Um, Let me just find it here. So what I've found is, I know the PNV translation is very popular, but I think it actually misses a few things. It's becoming increasingly apparent to me that it's not translated from Russian, it's translated from Maud. That's what it seems like to me. Um, so where's this paragraph? Um, okay, here we go. What I'm going to do is I'll read you the Maud, and then I'll read you the, uh, the PNV one. Um, Maud. Having ridden beyond the village... Okay, so by the way, I'll give you the context, because this is from book two. This is fast-forwarding a bit. So, um, Prince... Andre is um, inspecting an encampment of his army. He's riding around this encampment. He's just arrived there and just sort of having a look around and and an officer, a staff officer, is showing him around. Having ridden beyond the village, continually meeting and overtaking soldiers and officers of various regiments, they saw on their left some entrenchments being thrown up, the freshly dug clay of which showed up red. Several battalions of soldiers in their shirt sleeves, despite the cold wind, swarmed in these earthworks like a host of white ants. Spadefuls of red clay were continually being thrown up and behind the bank by un- from behind the bank by unseen hands. Prince Andre and the officer rode up, looked at the entrenchment and went on again. Just behind it, they came upon some dozen, dozens of soldiers, continually replaced by others, who ran from the entrenchment. They had to hold their noses and put their horses to a trot to escape from the poisoned atmosphere of these latrines. This is a pleasure one gets in camp, Prince, said the staff officer. So um, I was kind of like, I don't know, I wasn't 100% sure what was going on until I looked up the definition of the word latrines. I didn't know what that meant. And it means like a uh, makeshift toilet. Um, so, essentially what happens there is they've ridden up to some people, some guys, soldiers, who were digging entrenchments, and rode up to them to do an inspection, realised what they were inspecting, that they were toilets, and then kind of quickly rode off, uh, holding their noses and trying to escape the atmosphere. And then the staff officer says, this is one of the pleasures one gets in camp, sort of being sarcastic. Uh, so that's Maud. And then the PNV one, which I was referring to to try to clarify it, 
Well, I'll read it. You make up your own mind, but I reckon that they completely missed the joke there that, you know, they've kind of accidentally gone up and inspected toilets because they've gone, they've taken the word entrenchments, which is what Prince Andre thought they were inspecting. And in a way they were entrenchments, but not the kind of entrenchments they uh, imagined. But they've gone with fortifications. They've swapped out for a synonym fortifications. So, um, which um, doesn't really make sense as much, I don't think. They also took out the word latrines. And um, there's some ambiguity over who was holding their noses. So, I'll read it. The staff officer... Uh, sorry, having left the village, constantly meeting and going ahead of walking soldiers, officers of various detachments, they saw to their left the reddish, fresh, newly dug clay of the fortification under construction. Several battalions of soldiers in nothing but their shirts, despite the cold wind, were swarming like white ants over the fortification. Someone invisible kept shoveling out red clay from behind the rampart. They rode up to the fortification, examined it and rode on. Just behind the fortification, they ran into several dozen, dozen soldiers con- constantly replacing each other, running down the rampart. They had to hold their noses and set their horses to a trot to get away from that poisoned atmosphere. Uh, that's the pleasure of camp life, Prince, said the staff officer on duty. Um, so it wasn't the staff officer on duty. It was the staff officer that was showing him around. So that. I think they kind of added that incorrectly. Anyway, I'll read you my version now, which I tried to preserve the joke because I think Tolstoy is going for a joke there um, and also make it make sense, simplify the language. They continually caught up to and overtook soldiers and officers of various regiments as they rode beyond the village Outside the village, they saw to their left what looked like trenches being dug out, the freshly removed clay of vivid red. Several battalions of soldiers in short sleeves, despite the chill factor of the wind, were swarming these earthworks like a colony of ants. Spadefuls of red clay were continually flying out from behind the bank by unseen hands. Prince Andre and the officer rode up to to examine the entrenchments, took a very quick look and promptly kept moving. On the other side was a queue of soldiers cycling through by the dozen and scurrying off quick smart. Prince Andre and the staff officer had to hold their noses and put their horses to a trot to escape the foul stench of the hole-in-the-ground toilet they'd just inspected. Ah, the joys of camp life, Prince, said the staff officer. So, anyway, why did I do all that? I guess I just wanted to point out, this is not the first time that this has happened where it seems like P&V has kind of swapped in some synonyms just to sort of, they've taken Maud, put in some synonyms, but also the synonyms they've chosen don't actually quite capture what's going on. It's like they've actually misunderstood the paragraph. And um, that's happened quite a few times. So I don't think P&V is as good as a lot of people suggest. That's my thing. That's my thing I'm trying to say. That's what I'm saying. Anyway, let's go back to the conversation about book one, chapter 23. Grumpy Shakespearean says, Lisa and Maya clearly have a great deal of affection for each other, but I don't think that it will last once Andre is at war and the two of them are together a lot. You know that cousin you only get along with because you see them once a year at Christmas? That's how I see them. Okay. 
I suppose like there was a lot of uh, pageantry. I don't know what's the word. That's not the word, but like the- theatrics is the word I'm looking for with their greeting, which makes it seem very put on. You know, like all the tears and kissing and over. It was over. It was over the top. Uh, Lisa is very different from the Maya and Prince Bolkonsky, and I don't know how well she will fit into their perfectly managed, unending routine. She also doesn't seem like the type of to quietly hide her displeasure. So far, her emotions are all very effusive. Plus, how pregnant is she and how long will Andre be gone? I don't see a fussy newborn baby fitting too well into this household. Um, you know, I don't think anyone would fit into this household. It's so set. You know, we've got this grumpy old man who controls everything and this his daughter who sort of defends him even though he's quite nasty. Warren Kovofli Fifi said, Lisa seems to me a very positive and happy person, but if I had to guess, I think she might feel like herself when she's amongst society and cities like Petersburg and Moscow. If Andre is to leave her here for an extended period in his father's isolated estate, I'm going to assume the absence of city life and all her, all her aristocratic friends is going to take a toll. Maya seems to be very kind and caring, so this might help offset it somewhat. I'm going to stick with my initial assumption that Prince Nikolai loves both his children, but he's better at showing it with his son than his daughter. He is giving me the impression that he has some possibly chauvinistic tendencies and perhaps he's raising them in a way similar to the way he raised himself, was raised himself. All in all, I think he cares for Andre and Maya, but expresses it with Andre, who just might be his favourite. He's old school, isn't he? I think that's... And even old school for that time. He's old-fashioned. He does... Things like wearing antique coats. And if a coat was antique in 1807, that thing is old. Ikar 100 said, Do you guys have a mention of Army of Tolstoy in this chapter? Nikolai mentions it when they're talking to Andre. Seems like something would bring it up, or if it's just a quirk. Nice catch, says Korsho. Yes, this Tolstoy was a member of the same family as Leo Tolstoy, though not his direct ancestor. So there was a real army leader called Tolstoy. Very interesting. Peter Alexandrovich Tolstoy. Sufjan Fan said, 10 days ago I made this comment about how I like to talk with my partner and others, how the day-to-day interactions of relationships and friendships have changed through history and in different cultures. This morning I sent her the description of Lisa and Maya's surprise, greeting and their affection. Nowadays in my country and my social circles I've seen plenty of affection between close friends or relatives, but usually not quite like this, more hugging or cuddling and less kissing. Kissing on the hands has fallen completely out of fashion unless you're trying to be humorous. I just find this stuff very interesting. Me too. It is very interesting. My Jack said, Both Liz and Maya bring a smile to my face for very different reasons, so seeing them together will definitely be fun. I think living together might change the way they interact by a lot, considering how different they are, but who knows. Maybe opposites will attract this time. I hope so. Can't wait for what the three of them with Mademoiselle Boreen will be up to. Yeah, um, I mean, I think it was, was it like chapter two or three that Lisa expressed how much she doesn't want to be cooped up in this country town, country home, I should say. So it'll be interesting to see how she copes with that. On a cold, rainy day, this was the highlight. Oh, good to see that this was the highlight of your day. Count the tea. That's awesome. And Brian E. Denton, um, OG War and Peace legend, uh, Brian E. Denton um, has a quote from his uh, Medium article about today's chapter. 
Um, every year, my estimation of Princess Maya increases. Today offers a perfect example of why. Here, finally, we have all the Bolkonski clan together. Should be a happy affair, this being Bolkonski's, however, it is not. Keep in mind, as we look at what happens during this brief family reunion, that Audrey is off to, Andre is off to war the next day. First, Andre is a jaded jerk. His father is no better, deeming it fit to browbeat his son with his superior knowledge of foreign affairs. To boot, he boasts that his war was a much more serious war than the present skirmish with Napoleon. Okay, old man. The, <laughs> the little princess Lisa, meanwhile, prattles away, masking her worries over her husband with meaningless gossip. Mary is different. Tolstoy writes, Princess Mary was gazing in silence at her brother, her lovely eyes filled with affection and sadness. By Tolstoy's account, Mary is an ugly woman, but every time he writes of her eyes, those windows to the soul, he speaks of their loveliness. Throughout the novel, Mary earns this loveliness. Today, she does so as she is the only one to show her brother any true unvarnished affection. I love her. What a model of behavior. Oh, that's nice. Okay, let's read the next chapter, shall we? Yes, I think we shall. Chapter 27 or 24, if you're not reading more. At the appointed hour, on the dot, the prince came into the dining room, looking schmick, all shaved and powdered. His daughter-in-law, Princess Mary, and Mademoiselle Boreen were already there, waiting for him, gathered uh, together with his architect, which was weird because usually an architect wouldn't be invited to sit at the table with them on account of being just an architect. The prince was usually really strict about his social distinctions and wouldn't let any, wouldn't let someone as insignificant as Michael, his architect, Ivinovich, dine with them. Heck, he often wouldn't even let important government officials join his table. But recently he rather unexpectedly changed his tune in an attempt to illustrate the theory that all men are equal. More than once he had remarked to his daughter that Michael Ivinovich was just as good a person as you or I. Now the prince spoke to Michael Ivinovich more than anyone else during dinner. In the dining room, which, all, which like all rooms... In the house was massive and daunting. The members of the household and the footman, one behind each chair, stood waiting for the prince to enter. The head butler, napkin on arm, was double-checking the table setting, making hurried signs to the footman, and anxiously waiting for the prince, his eyes flicking between the clock and the door. Prince André had noticed a new thing, a large gilt-framed family tree of the prince's Bolkonski, and opposite that, there was a really rather shit portrait of a ruling prince wearing a crown, also in a gilt frame. The subject of the portrait was allegedly a descendant of Rurik and an ancestor of the Bolkonskis, and judging by its shitness, it was clearly painted by the estate's resident artist. Prince Andre looked again at the family tree, shook his head and laughed, the laugh of a man that is looking at a portrait, which is so characteristic of the original that it is amusing. Geez, he really nailed that one a perfect likeness, he said to Princess Mary, who had come up to him. Princess Mary was surprised. She didn't understand why he was laughing. Everything her father did inspired her with admiration and was unquestionably awesome. Everyone has his Achilles heel, continued Prince Andre. How's that, eh? With his powerful intellect indulging in such scribbles. Princess Mary still couldn't understand the boldness of her brother's criticism. She was trying to think of a reply when the unexpected when the expected footsteps were heard coming from the study. The prince came quickly and jauntily into the room, as he did, as if trying to contrast the briskness of his manners with the strict formality of his house. At that moment, the great clock struck two, and another clock out in the drawing-room joined in, too, with its shrill tone. Old man Bolkonsky stood still, 
His beady bright eyes under their bushy brows sternly scanned the room and stopped on his daughter-in-law, the little princess. She felt fear and respect as a courtier would when the Tsar arrived. Old man Bolkonsky inspired this feeling in everyone he encountered. He stroked her hair and gave her an awkward pat on the back of the neck. I'm really, really glad to see you, he said, looking intently into her eyes. He went quickly to his place and sat down. Sir, sit, sit down, Michael Ivanovich. He gestured to the little princess to sit beside him. A footman moved the chair for her. Whoa, said old man Bolkonsky, setting his eyes on her big pregnant belly. Someone's in a hurry. That's bad. He laughed in his usual humorless and unpleasant way, with his lips carrying the brunt of the laugh work while his eyes refused to participate. You've got to walk. Walk plenty. Do as much walking as you can, he said. The little princess didn't seem to hear him, whether by accident or by will, was unclear. She was silent and seemed confused. The prince asked her about her father, and then a smile lit her face and she started chatting. He asked about mutual acquaintances, and the little princess got more and more into the conversation, chatting happily and giving him greetings from various people and retelling the town gossip. Countess Apraxina, poor thing, she's lost her husband, cried her eyes out, she said, becoming quite lively. As she became animated, the prince looked at her more and more sternly, assessing her as she spoke, and then suddenly, as if coming to his conclusion, he turned away from her and started talking to Michael Avinovich. So, Michael Avinovich, our Bonaparte will be having a shocking time out there. Prince Andre, he always referred to his son this way, was has been filling me in on what forces are being rallied against him. Of course, you and I never thought much of Bonaparte. Michael Ivanovich tried to recall when he and the and old man Bolkonsky had ever spoken of Bonaparte, but was clever enough to know that he was merely being used as a conversational peg on which to hang the prince's favourite topic. He nodded and looked inquiringly at the young prince, wondering how this would unfold. He is quite the tactician, said the prince to his son, pointing to the architect. And the conversation turned to war, to Bonaparte, the generals, and the statesmen of the day. The old prince was convinced that men these days were babies who didn't know jack shit about war or politics, and that Bonaparte was just a sissy little French poofter who was only successful because there were no Potemkins or Suvorovs left to get in his way. He was also convinced that there were no political difficulties in Europe and no real war. It was all just kind of a puppet show. The new men were performing, pretending to do something real. Prince Andre politely copped his father's ridicule of the new men, of which he was one, and encouraged him on listening with evident pleasure. The past always seems good, he said. But didn't Suvorov fall for that little trap Moreau set him? And then he was buggered, right? Who told you that? cried the prince. Suvorov? And he swept his plate aside, which Tikhon swiftly caught. Suvorov? Think about it, Prince Andre. Two. Frederick and Suvorov. Moreau. Moreau would have been a prisoner if Suvorov had had a free hand, but he had the Hoff's Kriegswurz Schnapps wrath to deal with. The devil himself would have been puzzled by it. When you get there, you'll find out what the Hoff's Kriegswurz Schnapps wraths are. If Suvorov couldn't manage them, then Michael Kutuzov stands no chance. No, my dear boy, he continued, you and your generals are knackered if you come up against Bonaparte. You'll need to call in the French so that birds of a feather may fight together. They sent Parlin, the German, to New York, in America, to fetch the Frenchman, Moreau, he said, referring to the invitation that had been made to Moreau that year to enter the Russian service. Brilliant. Were the pot kem- p- 
Potemkins, Suvorovs, and Orlovs Germans? No. Son, either you youngsters have lost your minds, or I have outlived mine. I mean, good luck to you, but we'll see what happens. Bonaparte has become a great commander among them. Ha! I'm not saying all our plans are good ones, said Prince Andre. I'm just surprised that you think so little of Bonaparte. Laugh all you want, but you can't deny the man is a bloody good general. Michael Levinovich, cried the old prince to the architect, who was surreptitiously eating his roast meat and trying to be invisible. Wasn't I just saying that Bonaparte was a great tactician? Here, he agrees. Yes, definitely, Your Excellency, replied the architect. The prince again laughed his humourless laugh. Bonaparte was born with a silver spoon in his gob. He's got great soldiers. Besides, he got his start by attacking the Germans. Tell me, has anyone ever failed at attacking the Germans other than idiots? Since the beginning of time, people have been beating the Germans. The only fights the Germans win are against themselves, and that's where Bonaparte's made his reputation. An old man... And old man Bolkonsky was off and racing. He now harped on and on about all the blunders Bonaparte made in his campaigns and even in politics. His son didn't argue or comment, for it was obvious to him that no matter what either of them said, neither were going to change their opinion. He listened, biting his tongue, and found themselves wondering involuntarily how the old man got his information, for despite the fact that he'd lived alone in the country for so many years, he seemed to know the ins and outs of every recent European military and political event. "'You think I'm a senile old fart and don't know what's going on in the world, hey?' concluded his father. "'But I know, and it keeps me up at night. All right, tell me, where is this great commander of yours proving his skill?' That would take too long to tell, answered the son. Oh, sure. In that case, piss off to your Bonaparte. Mademoiselle Boreen, we've got another one here for that powder monkey emperor of yours, ready to kiss his ass. he exclaimed in excellent French. I'm no Bonapartist, prince, you know this. Do you say Quan Riverandra hummed the prince tunelessly, and with another cold laugh he left the table. Throughout the dinner and conversation, the little princess had sat silently, looking with frightened eyes now at her father-in-law and now at Princess Mary. After dinner, she took her sister-in-law's arm and pulled her into another room. "'What a clever man your father is,' she said. "'That's probably why I'm so terrified of him.' "'Oh, he's a sweetheart, top bloke,' answered Princess Mary. "'Cool, we did it. Guys, another chapter done.' Very nice. Hey, I think... Oh, yeah, hey, that was the penultimate chapter of book one, I believe. Tomorrow is the end of book one. That's pretty cool. At the end of book one, what I'm going to do is a recap of all of the chapters. That's what I'm going to do. And it's going to be cool, dude. All right, thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.